it's scary to have that questioned and to confront the fact that what you thought was true might not be and that the world and the basis of the, the foundation of the world that you've created for yourself might be shaky. Hello, my name is Luis de Oliveira, founder of De La Spada, and this is A Place to Talk. Today, we are Morgan Rimmel's home, which once was a Methodist church. She spent seven years as a director of the School of Life, where she had plenty of time to develop her thoughts on how to better live our lives. We both agreed how emotional intelligence is in short supply. So let's get right to it. Not having the tools to communicate or connect with each other and have a constructive dialogue and exploration of what that's really about. Because people are afraid to open up and adopt, even temporarily, another viewpoint because it feels personally threatening, right? And there are not many of us who have the skills to help negotiate that kind of dialogue or relationship. And I think that's what we're finding in education, in politics, when it comes to climate change. All of, all of these issues make people, for whatever reason, whatever sort of, however, however they've been conditioned or what identity they've constructed for themselves based on their life experience. Step out of their beliefs, their zone of, of beliefs, it's right? It's scary, and exactly. It's scary to have that questioned and to, ha- and to confront the fact that what you thought was true might not be and that the world and the basis of the, the foundation of the world that you've created for yourself might be shaky. I'm beginning to feel the idealist then is the wrong person to address those issues because they will immediately present their case. They will immediately confront these people with exactly what they don't want to hear. Well, it's not that they shouldn't hear that, but I wonder if there needs to be a sort of mediator or a a kind of process that allows those viewpoints to be shared in a less threatening way. And this is why a lot of people now are talking or finally kind of getting around to this idea that empathy is a skill that we need to kind of teach, practice, more widely adapt in private, but also in, you know, professional life. And that one of the most beneficial applications of that is being able to pull people together who hold diametrically opposed views and soften those positions a little bit. So it's less about identity and more about not how are we different and who am I and who are you, them, us, you, me, but where do we share some common ground? And to your point, where might we find or adopt a possibility for consensus? Let's go look for that common ground. Let's have mm. a bit of fun. And mm. we, we don't, yeah. you know, this is a pretend negotiation because neither of us really represent both sides, right? But let's, tell me why uh, emotional intelligence isn't given sufficient value in education. What is the obstacle that well, prevents people from accepting I mean, if you it look at a it, If you look at it in learning. a more macro-cultural context, I mean, it, like rapidly industrialized society has a need for workers who Can have certain, certain kinds things. of skills. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. We're now shifting into, particularly in the like late capitalist developed world, to needing a new set of skills, which we're actually not 
equipped with by and large. And that is more around our ability to think creatively, think laterally, to communicate well with people, to navigate very difficult conversations, emotional challenges and complexities that come with work that is primarily knowledge-based and dealing with quite... Forgive me for interrupting you, but that is seen now as an almost established truth, right? A lot of people pay lip service to that. But the education system hasn't caught up with that. This is a shift that's happened quite quickly. And at the same time, schools are not necessarily baking that into their curriculum. So it's why you see a real uptick in terms of training at a certain sort of class of company and why soft skills are being adopted very widely. And that's like the new sort of approach to management, for example. But are we learning that? in primary school and in, are we learning that in university? We're still churning out students who have very similar degrees to what we did 20 years no, ago. No, and I would say intriguingly, I don't see a demand for this new type of education. That, that's one of the things that I, that I felt disappointed with. I mean, I know it's a very, very singular... I mean, I think supply creates its own demand too. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. And certainly, you know, through my exposure to many, many, many thousands of students through the School of Life, The fact is, is when you leave university and hit the real world, that's when these problems become more evident and more evident. And the need need is there. The education system can can deliberately disguise them. Absolutely. Absolutely. By by giving you cookie points for things that are useless later on, right? Exactly. Or by treating everyone Mm -hmm. as a winner, which unfortunately that is not how our society works. Some people will succeed and some people will not succeed at that level, although the dream that people are sold is that everyone can be everything and have have it all. And the reality is that we can't all have it all, but I think we can have less but better, if that makes sense. But a moment ago you said that the problem is how we talk to each other. The Mm. problem is Mm. how one side engages another side and Mm. then delivers something Mm. new, right? So what am I, so-called idealist from the educational side, and, and it's true that we may not agree on every detail, but where, where does my position need to compromise or present itself in a way that will engage the other side, the people that represent, we I could call it's it the status quo. The, I think it's getting to the root of their anxieties and their concerns about what it would mean to give up the system and the method that they're so invested in. So what are the risks Most in letting of them that say go? They're, they're afraid of losing what they see as good education. That that somehow it will be tampered with. It'll be ruined by the the stabbling. But then we need. Then you really need to push that question further. But what do you mean by good education? And then it's a process of proper reflection about well, what do we mean by good education? Because a lot of people hold opinions that they have never really thought about before. Does that make sense? Like they hold the opinion, but they haven't really done the thinking for that for themselves. So. Maybe it's because it's been done that way. Maybe it's because that's how they were schooled and everybody they know has been schooled that way. But what do they really think good education is? To have a discussion around that. What do we need to learn in order to flourish and live a good life? What do we mean by success? Do we really mean that it looks this way? I think getting people to engage with those questions, not in a confrontational way, but in a sort of gentle exploratory way, being curious, cultivating their curiosity about that and forming their own opinion, not just reflecting back another, is a good way to sort of start moving the dial on that. 
Because to just say, oh, we're losing a good model, but what do we mean by a good model? What do they mean by a good model? And maybe they come back with evidence, right? That says, okay, I have thought about this, and these are the things that really, really work. You know, this is reminding me of something. You're bringing me back to a skill or an approach, let's call it the Socratic method, right? Where through questioning, we get to the truth, right? Mm -hmm. If there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. But somehow I feel there's a contradiction between the Socratic method and the intensity, the passion that comes with idealism, mm. right? Mm. And, and actually, it's an endearing trait, I think. I've never met an idealist who is not passionate. And if, if they're not passionate, then, well, then perhaps anyone, they're not I think, earnest. I think anyone who holds a belief passionately, like you could be a fascist and still but, have that kind of passion. Ooh, do you know? Ooh, but, yes, yes, you And could this be. is what's interesting right. about politics right now. And when we think, I think it's because it becomes so full of feeling and we are not great at managing those, right? Or understanding that they're not the whole picture. So it's almost like, how do you take a little bit of the heat out, right? To be able to get to the point where you can reflect a little bit further on that. And it's hard because the knee-jerk reaction, as you say, is, but I believe in this. And yes, da-da-da. this is good. Yes, but, and I don't necessarily have the answer, but I do feel that it's about a softening of those poles. And, no, you and do like, have the answer. You're saying well, question them whilst questioning yourself. Well, yeah, it's about, it's, I mean, it's, self-knowledge, self-awareness. There you go. Emotional education, absolutely. I think that all helps you to increase your ability to adopt and hold another perspective without being threatened by it or feel that you must be subsumed by it. I think most people just consume, take, put things on, try things on, put, you know, it's like, I'll be this, I don't want to be that anymore, I'll be that. They pick and mix. And kind why, of why do we do that? Why? We're like magpies. Well, I don't really, know. We're, we're, we're hollow and so we need to borrow everything? Quotes, ideas... I think sometimes that... I mean, I, 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 I know exactly what you're saying. I think sometimes that can be good. Like there's a sort of mindful, thoughtful curation and choosing. I think that can be very nourishing. And then there's a sort of mindless, just kind of snacking on junk food sort of vibe of pulling yourself together, which is, is very superficial. Oh, boy. I think, I mean, we see it all the time. It's like, I mean, and think about kind of, I don't know, even like design on Instagram. It's, it's, how many things do people like and then never actually even remember or think about again? <laughs> you know, I don't, like, well, if, that I, if I, it's just a if like, I, if like, I watch like, my like, teenage daughter, it can be quite a few. I mean, but just like, <laughs> it can be quite a, a few I things. I think there's a kind of danger to that just, um, kicking into that one mode of filtering and selecting and acquiring and kind of consuming versus kicking into the different mode of thinking or learning, which requires more work. And that's, you know, and I think a lot about that in relationship to culture and where culture sits now and why, you know, it's much easier to just like binge watch a Netflix box set than it is to go to see a gallery show that might be challenging or quite difficult to understand. And it's not because we don't have the capacity for those other things. It's we haven't had the practice 
You know what I mean? It's like you, you know what I don't like about what I'm hearing. Mm. It, it implies that we're some something hollow that needs to dress itself, and there's nothing. But I think you deep can, within us these core kind of human values. Well, that's not true. I don't believe that at all. I think I think we do have that. I think it's very easy to lose connection to that, and I don't think it's it's. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's any anyone's fault. I think we've created a world, particularly in in cities, for example, that is very demanding of our attention, distracting, busy, hyperproductive. I think that's challenging for any human being to say what, what fully anchored out? and present. So hold on. So what does the city do? What does it strip away from my core human decency? It, or does it force me to just put on some veneer and and because I don't have time to even think about myself? To some extent, I think because I've never heard this connection between city, right? Or it's not. Ju- life I mean, it's not just cities, but I think in, cities are a good example a good, of a this. Good place they for, they, they for are this. a good a good example of this. They're a good. They're a good place for this, um, and a lot of it has to do with the like amount of stimulation, right? There is so much information coming at you that you have to filter and sort of respond to. And so many demands in our working life, and the way that we've constructed a working life, which is always on, you know, always on your phone, always on your okay. laptop, always on. Um, I don't think we leave a lot of room for just being still, quiet, connecting with the self, right? And okay. I think that's why you see such a huge so this, this is shift a too much noise in wellness. Argument, right? Sorry? Too much noise. Argument. Too much. Too much noise. Not enough noise. signal. Okay, and that, that is what then prevents us from relying on these core instincts. We borrow things and put You them just on. lose touch, I think. You lose touch. I think that's why there's been such a shift towards and an interest in slow living, in wellness, in mindfulness. Because I, pe- I think people need those things. I think people are hungry for that. I think they want to reconnect with that. I mean, certainly in my experience at the School of Life, That is why people were there, right? To find a way of connecting with themselves and with other people. But help me out. They have to find, they want to find something. Are you telling me again that this is something that existed? Were, were we wiser in the past? Were I think, we closer to our real selves back then? No, right? So why are we under such need now? Yes and no. I mean, I, the, this idea of wisdom and sort of wisdom technologies or traditions to help cultivate. I mean, that's like two thousand years old. Yes, there have been, been around many. For a while. Yeah, this is not yeah. a new thing. No, this is a human. No, this is sorry, a human need. A human you pursuit. Invented it. No, I know exactly. But but it's an age old issue, right? So it's it's not new that it's an issue for us now. I think it's that we need different models and tools for cultivating it like we we live it in a different context in a different life it's it's a longer life it doesn't have the set sort of prescribed milestones and boundaries that we used to to have it doesn't have the institutional infrastructure and way of structuring our time for example our rituals are different those those are things that have effects that i don't know that we are 
wholly conscious of until we live with them for a while and get a little bit of perspective. So for example, smartphones, you know, amazing until we realize that actually there's some less amazing aspects to constantly being glued to your screen and being always on. And so you course correct. But I think it's also where design becomes a really interesting tool to be thinking about those things and thinking about that kind of human, natural human yearning to make meaning and to think about the new types of tools that we could design to kind of help transmit and share insight and wisdom. I mean, I don't know, I think do, it's kind of an interesting... See, do you see this happening? So, so it's as if we need new things and new homes and new roads to walk on and but new those cities might, to But that in. might also be inspired by the past, right? So sometimes it's not all about chucking away everything that happened before, but it's about mining that for what is most useful and relevant and beneficial to us now without being like completely beholden or romanticizing it. You know, come back to politics again. Sometimes there's this like fixedness with particular governing doctrines. You know, it's like it's held up as this like this is immutable way. thing that was made hundreds of years before any of us lived in a completely different context. So like at what point, I think it's important that we draw on history, but at what point do you stop making it? I mean, I think these are the things that we're really, I don't know, struggling with and experimenting with now. And particularly in an age where it's, the change is just happening so much more rapidly. Hold on, so you're painting a confusing world. I need to keep some of the past and invent my future. Mm. I need to do both. I, I don't feel equipped. You have to become a time traveler. Oh boy. <laughs> Well, because... Oh, I need to buy a DeLorean then <laughs> and drive around in it. Well, I think it's the idea that we do need to understand where we have come from as individuals that have come from a very particular like, family system that has you know, framed your psychology and imprinted you in a certain way, but also to understand your cultural context. I think it's also about understanding your relationship to the present moment and how we occupy like life right now. Let me try to drill down on that because I understood mm. the bit, I need to know where mm. I come from. Mm. But you, then you said, I need to know where I am in mm. the present context. Do you mm. want to use another set of words to help me out? Because I need to follow your argument. Sure. So I think some of that is about where the current discussion around mindfulness sits. Yes. To engage with and fully embody our senses and to be able to gather and read more feedback than just what's coming through your phone, to be present and give attention to other people in the moment, right? Because although we have hold a vision for the future and I think should be trained in skills that help us see and set goals and create potential plans, the point is we live only in this moment and we need to be able to cope with what's happening in our inner landscape what's happening in our immediate kind of surroundings and navigate and make very small changes all the time, every day. So, so I feel like the present is really about small things, about behaviors, about habits, about little connections that we have that over time 
give a design or a shape to our lives, right? You, you, you were giving me like a, a toolkit or a set of instructions on how to build this world of tomorrow, right? Where we come from, then look around you, mm. right? Notice, for example, that the mosque is built in, is in a pub. Notice, for example, that I just elbowed someone in the tube, right? So I've got that. And now how do I build the future? How do I, which bits do I discard? What, which bits do I invent? Well, this is where, I mean, I like this idea of kind of radical curiosity and this idea that there are lots of ways for us to ask questions, which are not always verbal, but that are through like trying, trying things, through play, through connection, through relating, that can give us a sense of what's possible in that field. And I like the idea that design can be a tool to help us think about how we might prototype something for the future and experiment and test. And it gives us a means of observing and reflecting and provoking and adapting. So it's not that we need to hold like in our minds a perfect vision or have an exact blueprint, but I think It's acknowledging that the little things that we do today have second, third, fourth order effects within our wider immediate world, but in the future. And we have to be, I don't know, developing a kind of mental toolkit that lets us work with that and be more proactive about it and intentional about what we're shaping. Does that make sense or is it too abstract? Yes, it is a little abstract. Yeah. Although I think it brings us back to your defense of the idealist, mm. right? That you said mm. that it isn't just about focusing on, on the big ideal itself, but recognizing that that idealism makes small changes around you and that those in the end kind I of think, but create I think, the future. I think the other thing is it's also not necessarily about the specific challenge or issue. I think it's about your mindset because the point is there will always be challenges. There are always going to be issues that need resolving. The more important thing is that we work on our mindset and improve our understanding of ourselves and of the world. So no matter what is coming at us, we have a mental toolkit and a network that can respond and adapt and find solutions. So I guess I sort of feel like there's so many issues that I'm passionate about and would like to, to cover. influence yes. in some way or help move the dial on in some way. But what I'm more interested in doing so that I can be effective in that context and help people who have very particular specialisms or passions, right, that they want to pursue at all costs is how I can develop a set of skills and a way of thinking and seeing the world that can help to mobilize and amplify that work. And I think there are loads of, of, we should all be kind of aiming for that. So you're an idealist idealist. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm a meta idealist. Something like that, yes. (laughs) Your words, not mine. I just triggered them. (laughs) So that's how you've made sense of the world. You see so many problems, you see so many opportunities, so many fun things to engage with. You're too busy to deal with all the time, right? You well, no, are too but I, busy. No, but I also, and therefore, but okay, so you've decided to about, create a structure for us. Forgive me for talking over well, you. Well, yeah, no, but maybe it's like that trim tab thing. It's like, so 
I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. I'm not any one of those particular things. What I have is a brain that enjoys the breadth that's quite hybrid in terms of links and what I'm themes. drawn to and themes. Um, yeah. I've had the incredible good fortune of being able to spend a chunk of my time really thinking about life and what that means for people and observing that in Fair the enough. context of not, individuals. Not everyone has that blessing. Not everyone has that blessing. Yeah. I, I, such an important moment in my career and in my life, that, that period. And I also deeply care about the world and how I can have an, an influence or an, a part in making it better. And through my research into design, in starting to really understand how design thinking works and how design as a mindset or an attitude, thank you, Alice Rothsorn, um, can be applied to... Credit has been granted. She will say that someone else invented it. <laughs> well, of course. A gentleman He's, with a Hungarian yeah, yeah, name. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Kuri. I was like, I'll let you pronounce his name. Yes, I but can. But the you, idea you that it, it can be um, applied to life, to me, I think is, I mean, it's just endlessly inspiring. And if my contribution is how you make the link between the individual and the system and having being an advocate for design as a, as a tool and way of doing that, Maybe that's my little acupuncture. Do you think you've brought this point. up? You've brought this up quite mm. a lot in at several points in the conversation, right? How you probably you feel the pressure to introduce the word design, mm. or or probably no, you I don't are, feel the pressure. I actually believer. legitimately You're feel an that way. Believer, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I meant in the context of this conversation, yeah. right? Yeah, Which is yeah. this is not happening in a void. Yeah. I came yeah. here for a reason, and yeah. and you are here for another reason. <laughs> so um, this is a huge promise. This is probably an unkeepable promise. We're going to crash if we make these promises to the world. But will we crash someplace that's a bit further along than where we're going to crash if we don't oh. try? It's like the moon shot, right? Like you shoot for the, or the Mars shot, like you shoot further and hit the moon. Like it, you, I just believe you, we have to raise the ambition. It doesn't, I, I, it's not about getting to that perfect goal. It's about moving it forward to better. It's, you know, like we used to talk about this, a lot in the context of relationships and parenting, that it's not about being the perfect parent, it's not about having the perfect relationship, it's about good enough, right? But the you perfect need... being the enemy of the good, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> and as a recovering perfectionist, I mean, I know that it breeds like neuroticism and extremism. As a shades of gray good, <laughs> I can tell you it's quite okay out here. But occasionally you feel confused because <laughs> you're deprived of those certainties that you had as a perfectionist. Well, I mean, I think I'm actually quite a shades of gray person, to be honest. I don't believe that. No, I, I, I have a really... Sometimes it can be... You know, be, I was watching your hands incisively be, mark the air around you no, but sometimes, as you describe the system that you had prepared for the no, world. I think it's more that, that that gives me a framework that I can then work within. I think I'm actually very alive to the nuance and like aware of the nuance that exists in the world and between people. And I've lived in a lot of different places. I've fucked up a lot, like everyone else. Like none of us are kind of normal or perfect or who we say we are. Like we're much more complex beings than that. And we all contain different people within us. So it's never a, like a kind of black or white thing with me, but I do think it's about a sense of 
progress and ideals that give you a reason to kind of, I don't know, get out of bed in the morning and something to go for, right? Mm, like all things, it's a matter of degrees of idealism, yeah, right? Yeah, and degrees of energy that you put into getting out of bed. Give me, give me a, throw me a bone with with this theme of idealism that seems to have dominated this. I know. Well, well. <laughs> it's your fault. It's your fault. Uh, you said that you 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 said you put out bait, uh, <laughs> right? And I and I bit. So um, I I had someone that that I know well recently turn and look at me and say, Luis, be careful because you'll soon need the dog collar. Ow. I know. Wow. Yeah. They clearly know me too well. What is the idealist answer to that? Oh. Because it's like... Well, you... What was your answer? I, I, I was silenced. Were you just flabbergasted? I was, <laughs> no, I was stunned into silence. You know, up until then, I had the gift of the gap. Right. I had a lot to say and a lot to share. And I admit I wasn't asking a lot of questions, mm. which, as you've pointed out, probably is the flaw. Um, Not, a flaw. Uh, Not a flaw. But, but uh, you know, people, uh, that comment was, oh, there, there is a, a whole school of human events where people put on dog collars and mm. bad things happen after that, right? And, and it's the perils of a fundamentalist attitude in, in almost anything mm. in life. Mm. And as a shades of great person, I, I felt it immediately, mm. you know, and it undermined the idealism that had swept me in the seconds before that. Yeah, it kind of came it really crashing deflated. back down to it. Yeah, deflated yeah, me yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. So hey, who's who's right? What is the toolkit that I need to kind of pick myself up again? Oh, that's a really good question. An idealist that has doesn't have their feet on the ground is well, is a person that is lost. And so we need these moments. Well, this is where we come back to the idea of realistic utopia, right? Realistic utopia. Okay. It's like, yes. and, and also there's a fantastic quote. Make it great, but make it close and nearby. Well, it's head in the stars, feet on the ground. Uh, right? You've said that before. Yeah, but it's... Repetition. I don't think I said it. I think you I said think feet on called, the ground. No, you're called in camera. I said it. I, I, did I? I yes, okay, well, it's a really good quote. And I actually think it is a good... Kind of I'll tease you life. and I'll say that I, I, I believe there's a, um, some shoes out there. Oh, yes. The oh, God, don't mention those. That, that, <laughs> that may, be, may or may not be connected to this. That matchup. is true. That is yes, true. Okay. That is true. But anyway, it was a good quote. It was a good Let's quote. Let's be magpies I think it is a good it. quote. I think it is a good quote. And I also think it's... Uh, so we need these moments. I think we need these moments. Oh, it's, it's, you or know, someone, you, you can't have, what is it, the, the other quotes we can throw out there. Um, don't. No, I know. I was <laughs> like, let's not up, go there. We might plaster them on more shoes. But, or, but I also think it's, you, you, you need shadow in order to have light. It's that simple. Like, you need those moments of, like, the dark night of the soul to really question your assumptions and why and what it's all about. I mean, that's part of life. It would be deeply weird if you were just... Certainty. I think so. Or, I mean, it's not about... I don't know, people talk a lot about happiness at the moment. And... They do. What are they looking for? <laughs> I think what they think they want is happiness, but I think what we need is a sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose. And I don't think that always looks like happy. 
I think that looks like hard work. I think that looks like self-doubt. I think that looks like moments of real fear and anxiety. I think that looks like periods of extreme pessimism. But ultimately, I think it ladders up to something which is much more about finding out who you really are and what drives you and what motivates you and how you can align yourself with the world and find a way to make yourself useful and give back. And that that brings different kinds of rewards, which are bittersweet, but I think are somehow more substantial. That's the optimist realist manifesto, if I've ever heard mm. one. Mm. Hey, we've been having a conversation. How do these things work? What conversations? Makes, yeah, How do what conversations makes, what work? What makes a good... Let's, let's recap. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm the compulsive recapper, so I've got to <laughs> kind of wrap this all up and say it's a wrap. Well, I think so how do conversations work? Was I it, did, I, did I listen to you? Did I ask you questions? Well, I think a good conversation is when people come to it with a curious and kind of hungry mind, right? I okay. think we sat down at this table and I was absolutely curious to know more about what, what you thought and what you were about. And I think you felt the same way. I think you asked great questions and provocative questions, not questions that were sort of picking at the surface, but straight, straight to what do you really think? But is think? that part of the art of conversation? If we, I think if, part if we of the art of good conversation. Yeah, I think it's not about, tell me what you do for a living. It's a skewer to pin well, people down. Not to pin people down. I think it's to get to the heart of what really matters, right? And that's in, in asking the right questions. A good question can unlock like a whole a lot of world. Answers. Yeah. yeah. Well, not even just a long answer, but like deep insight, right? Whole facets of a person that would never be revealed otherwise. So how, how can we do that without offending? Because that's... So that's the fear that a lot of people have in conversation, mm -hmm. right? That if I, if I broach the subject, I, I might do it in a way that's not graceful. And my guest, tact. host, friend, <laughs> acquaintance will tact. Tact? Kindness? Do you Politeness? I, st I still have to be... Humor? Ah, okay. Playfulness? It's a way that you, you know, you lighten things up. It makes a hard question not a threatening question. You know, it's interesting. Like we talk, so you, we will we you, divulge these things to Uber drivers and hairdressers and strangers all the time, right? It's easy for us to open up when there's no potential threat of real I, exposure. I was say, we need to be in the right frame of mind as well for those impromptu things to happen. This is conversation is much more deliberate, right? Mm. If let's say I meet you at, at a dinner party, which is for a certain class of people a very common place mm. where conversation mm. happens, mm. at that point. We're trying to talk. It's not, I'm not, I haven't, you know, letting my hair down in the back of a, of a cab. Mm. We're trying to talk. We're trying to do this dance, this ritual. But, and that's why, and that's why. And so why, I'll ask you about well, the weather and well, where you've been on holidays. And that's why actually dinner parties can be mind-numbingly boring sometimes. Um, and it's actually one of the reasons why we used to run kind of alternative New dinner parties, dinner parties. <laughs> the school of life, where what, one way that we kind of helped to get past the weather and what you do for a living was to actually give people a conversation menu, which just cut through the crap and started out with an amuse-bouche, which was sort of a jumping off point, a quote or something that 
people were able to respond to and give a point of view on. And then kind of first course, second course, third course would progressively get more deep and meaningful. And, you know, could start out with something as simple as like, what was the most surprising conversation you've ever had? And then get into things like death and, you know, heavier stuff. But, you know, by that point you're warmed up and you no, have a sense that, of kind of I, I feel trust like quoting the catcher into rye and say, I smell fake. I'm not going to use the, no, the word. Do you know, there, I'm you not going to use what, the word that really defines this. You know what can really be useful about artifice in that, in that context is that it allows you to play by the rules. The rules. Which means you don't have to feel stupid because somebody Someone else imposed you. them. So, okay, like no, everybody's going to look silly, so nobody looks silly. And in a way that just sort of takes the pressure off and it works as an icebreaker. Because it would be very difficult to necessarily like to do that would in an it, earnest, the, idealistic way. The, uh, okay, guys, <laughs> we're going to have a deep and meaningful conversation here. But no agenda. I, the anarchist in me, though, doesn't like the sound of this because authority then is imposing the conversation from above. Look, it's one technique. I'm not saying that it is the, the way. The way forwards. It's not necessarily okay. the way, but it's a useful tool and experiment. And it's, I absolutely think that we're capable of having dinner parties where that kind of conversation flourishes without any sort of help. The fact is but it doesn't. But not always. So yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't most of the time. Not easily. Yeah. So it means that there must be something quite challenging in, in this art. I mean, I'm, I'm mm. still finding it mm. hard. Mm. And so I was looking for tips. But well, you, you said I, ask questions, but you didn't mention listen. No, no, listening for sure. So what, what, how, can, how should you listen? Asking, it's asking the right question. Okay, right? We, we agree, so, yes. Yeah. No, I, um, no, no, but no also, weather. Yeah, and then but, also listening, but sort of So d- t- describe listening. the art of listening. It's, what is it? Is it trying to find the heart of the matter and I think and sometimes listening or? looks like being fully present with somebody and giving them your full attention. That breaks golden dinner party rules, right? I'm supposed to look left and then look right, and I can't. Well, maybe the dinner party is the ideal format. But I'm always getting format. into that kind of trouble. No, I always screw up because I end up always like earnestly looking at the person next to me. But this is often <laughs> and then why it's I a will good not idea. Let go of them for but, the next well, hour the, and a half. Okay, small but brilliant technique is yes. for people to change seats, <laughs> like with the courses. So at least you have Artifice. a you have. But it helps deal with the issue that you've just described. So you do agree that, that you need that intensity of paying attention. This is something that I somehow find myself doing. And, and I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure about it because I see other people, starting with the social butterflies, mm. that manage to move from person to person fluently. And I just feel that but if I'm talking to you... But I feel like I that's to, a different type of conversation, for example. So that person's job is, not, is different than yours. Like the, the role they're playing as host or as social butterfly Re- is to that. pollinate, right? Is to whilst, whilst you're saying that what I'm doing is just getting to know someone. Exactly. I think it's just operating at a, different, at a different level. I mean, for some people, it's about broad. It's about pulling people together. It's about yes. somebody looking at the dynamic of the room and seeing... And making sure that it's, to, it's to, a happy place and well, that there's and no one left alone. create yes. a certain mood or atmosphere or level of energy. And actually, I think that's a skill. I think hosting in that sense is a oh, real I, I, skill. I grant you that. It's yeah. one I don't have. <laughs> no, but, but I think equally, 
the ability to sit down and really unpack something and be there as a kind of sounding board and as a listener that lets someone someone talk yes yeah, someone is, open up is a gift right i mean god it's so rare that you get, that you get that these days maybe with your therapist but i mean it's hard to get people's attention these days it's not often that you get to sit down really outside of a business meeting oh, i've just had a flaw and turned into a gift i, I feel i think it is I a gift ho- i feel rather wholesome right now then well, on that note, I'm <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate the show. Subscribe if you enjoyed today and see you soon. <laughs>